0: Hi there! Welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. In this episode, we will suggest various kinds of mindsets that might help us to lead a happier life. My Ma troisième maxime était de tâcher toujours plutôt à me vaincre que la fortune. My third maxim was to endeavor always to conquer myself rather than fortune. And change my desires rather than the order of the world. And in general, accustom myself to the persuasion that except our own thoughts there is nothing absolutely in our power so that when we have done our best in respect of things external to us, all wherein we fail of success is to be held, as regards us, absolutely impossible. And this single principle seemed to me sufficient to prevent me from desiring, for the future, anything which I could not obtain, and thus render me contented. For since our will naturally seeks those objects alone, which the understanding represents as in some way possible of attainment, it is plain that if we consider all external goods as equally beyond our power, we shall no more regret the absence of such goods as seem due to our birth, when deprived of them without any fault of ours, than our not possessing the kingdoms of China or Mexico, and thus making, so to speak, a virtue of necessity we shall no more desire health in disease, or freedom in imprisonment, than we now do bodies incorruptible as diamonds, or the wings of birds to fly with. But I confess there is need of prolonged discipline and frequently repeated meditation to accustom the mind to view all objects in this light. And I believe that in this chiefly consisted the secrets of the power of such philosophers as in former times were enabled to rise superior to the influence of fortune, and amid suffering and poverty, enjoy a happiness which their gods might have envied. For, occupied incessantly with the consideration of the limits prescribed to their power by nature, they became so entirely convinced that nothing was at their disposal except their own thoughts, that this conviction was of itself sufficient to prevent their entertaining any desires for other objects. And over their thoughts, they acquired a sway so absolute that they had some ground on this account for esteeming themselves more rich and more powerful, more free and more happy than other men who Whatever be the favors heaped on them by nature and fortune, if destitute of this philosophy, can never commend the realization of all their desires. This excerpt comes from part three of the Discourse on the Method, Le Discours de la méthode, written by René Descartes in the 17th century. Therefore the language, pardon my pronunciation here. Descartes, in this Discourse on the Method, suggests a provisional moral code consisting of just three or four maxims, as he says. Here we are looking at the third maxim of this kind of recipe for morality. In our last episode, we put into question the idea that happiness is the main or ultimate goal of our life. We also looked at our responsibility or absence thereof in our feeling happy. We asked ourselves if it was up to us to be happy or if it was an ability that was just assigned more to certain persons than to others because of biological predispositions or because of social luck. But if there is at least a little bit that seems to be up to our will in our being happy, then we better think hard about how or where we want to direct this will. We better identify clearly what are the things we should seek and the ones we should avoid. Often I hear from friends of mine, you think too much, just go with your gut, don't overanalyze and you will be better off. Well, if there is a little part uh, that is up to us in our being happy, then I do think that we need to think before we need to will. We need to think about what we should want, what we should avoid, in order to get into that mental attitude that we might be able to partly influence. So let's look at what philosophers had to say about that and start with a very famous proponent of hedonism called Epicurus. Epicurus is asking us to distinguish between good and bad pleasures, to distinguish between good and bad desires, and limiting the latter. So first, let's distinguish between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure seems to have to do with more uh, something ephemeral, fleeting. It's partial or fragmentary. It seems to be concerning a specific organ, a part of the body, or a specific sense. Even a specific idea gives us pleasure, sometimes a thought, but we can still be very unhappy while experiencing pleasure. While happiness has this lasting or sustainable connotation to it, it seems to be more a state of continuous contentment and satisfaction no matter what causes the satisfaction or pleasure. So certain pleasures, short-term pleasures, according to Epicurus, might have to be avoided or limited at least in order to actually be happy in the long term. Now let's dispel a common cliche about Epicurus straight off the bat. He is not about carefree carpe diem, okay, which means seize the day. He is not just a Careless YOLO type of guy uh, at all. Yolo. He's somebody who actually thinks very deeply about the types of desires we might need to avoid in order to be happy. I am just inserting this warning here because I remember a grocery store with fancy goodies in Miami named Epicurus, which is very misleading in regards to what Epicurus actually had to say about pleasure, desire, and happiness. So what he does is actually separate desires in three categories, okay? So first category, the natural and necessary desires. Those are about, you know, being thirsty, for instance, and being willing to drink water, demanding a minimal amount of shelter, for instance, or a minimal amount of food, Also, friendship is part of these natural and necessary desires that indeed need to be fulfilled in order to be happy. And then you have the natural desires, but that are not necessary. That would be kind of an upgrade on the natural and necessary desires. So let's say now you're thirsty, but you crave actually a glass of wine instead of just a glass of water. Or you crave, if you're hungry, a piece of chocolate cake instead of a piece of bread, or something like that. The third category, which is the the tricky one, or the trickiest one, is the category of the vain desires. They are neither natural nor necessary. What Epicurus has in mind here, when talking about these vain, empty desires, are things like craving power, fame, or wealth, for instance. So he advises for us to eradicate entirely our unnatural and unnecessary desires, doomed as vain and empty. But also he advises to limit our natural and unnecessary desires, the second category. So this upgrade category I talked about, namely willing, for instance, to eat a chocolate cake or something like that. So why does he ask us to limit those? Well, not only because Too much immediate pleasure can become addictive and we might easily get used to it. And if or when we end up not being able to afford the satisfaction of these desires anymore, we would suffer from that lack. But also another reason why we should limit these natural but unnecessary desires is that they might end up dulling our palate. That's what we call today the diminishing marginal utility in technical terms. That just means that the more you do something, the less pleasurable it actually becomes. Like going to the restaurant. I remember being ecstatic as a child when we would go to eat at the restaurant, precisely because it was rare. If you go every day, it becomes normal and less exciting. Just a side note here, I'm not so sure that all pleasures actually diminish in their intensity the more you indulge in them. Take wine or cigarettes or sex, for instance, It seems that the more you experience these activities, the more they become pleasurable. So I'm not sure that, you know, this diminishing marginal utility is a valid argument for all types of pleasures. So to go back to what Epicurus is saying, by promoting a limitation of our desires, he really calls for a negative definition of happiness. And indeed, he identifies happiness to ataraxia, namely the absence of troubles of the soul and aponia, the absence of physical pain. So happiness is nothing more than the result of a remedy against what causes unhappiness. A remedy that needs lucidity, rational skills to distinguish between healthy and unhealthy desires, and discipline the mind to constantly remind oneself of that. This remedy that Epicurus calls tetrapharmakos, actually includes fighting against or avoiding four potential sources of anxiety. One is the fear of God. Another is the worry about death. A third one is the fear of the fact that what is good might not be easy to get. That's the one you can avoid by selecting only the simple, natural and necessary desires, calling only for easily attainable goods, such as minimal shelter, water, bread, friends. And then the four potential source of anxiety is the idea that we are going to have difficulties to endure pain. Pain and suffering are believed by Epicureans to be if intense, fairly brief, or if chronic, fairly mild. So for them, it is actually not difficult to endure pain. So let's go back to the fear of God and the worry about death, which are the two potential sources of anxiety we didn't speak about yet. Regarding the fear of God or of the gods, well, they are actually perfect immortal beings. So they cannot possibly have an interest in affecting our mortal, miserable lives. The gods cannot be weak and being willing to harm us would be a sign of weakness. Regarding the fear of death now, which is the second potential source of anxiety, Epicurus reminds us that we shouldn't be afraid of something that we won't experience. We will never be dead. Being dead doesn't mean anything. It's a contradiction in terms. Because when we exist, when we are, death is absent. And when death is here, we are not anymore. We can go back maybe to this uh, theme about death in another episode shortly after this one. But for now, let's say that parallelly to this tetra-pharmacos, this fourfold remedy, Epicurean philosophy advocates for temperance, and that's also a very important point. People need to work on remaining even tempered, on avoiding mood swings, fits of temper like pests. This idea of temperance is actually also found in other ancient schools of thought. For instance, Stoicism. Though Stoicism centers more around duty and reason rather than around pleasure and friendship, it also advocates for temperance by making us distinguish, this time, between what depends on us and what doesn't, what we have control over and what we don't have any control over. Unhappiness, for Stoicism, occurs when we believe wrongfully that we are in control of everything that happens to us. So for Stoicism, happiness is a type of acceptance of the necessity of what happens. Happiness is almost a thoughtful resignation that aims at avoiding frustration and regrets. On loss and grief, for instance, some of the most painful experiences Stoic philosophers would advise to recognize that what wounds the grieving person is not the event itself of the death of the closed one, but the judgment we carry upon that event. So happiness is to be found in the control over our mental attitudes, independently from external circumstances. The legend says that Epictetus, one of the central defenders of Stoicism, had his leg broken by his owner when he was a slave, and that his reaction was absolutely emotionless, given that he had no control over the cruelty of his master. Just like for Aristotle, Epicurus, and for the ancient generally, to be happy here has less to do with a good natural disposition than with a rational, almost moral effort. The root of happiness is to be found in the practice of philosophy, in the training of our ability to think adequately. And you find this idea in Descartes as well, whom we read at the beginning of this episode. We need to be able to accurately evaluate the feasibility of our desires, to put our desires in accordance with our capacities, or realities we barely control. So Descartes says that it is better to change our desires rather than the order of the world. That's a famous quote from him, but what he means by that is that we need to adapt our desires to our abilities. Descartes illustrates this by a metaphor of a big and a small boat full of liquors, both of them. If the small boat wants as much liquors as the big one has, it's going to drown. I cannot choose certain given facts in my existence, but what I am responsible for is how I decide to interpret these facts. I am responsible for the way I look at what I can control and what I cannot control. And just a side note here, Descartes also points out yet another thing to avoid in order to be happy, namely indecision. So for him, we really need to work on making our willpower stronger and as well-guided as possible by reason in order to not fall in this paralysis of the will. So all that is pretty joyless as a conception of happiness. Ancient philosophy gives, as I said earlier, a negative definition of it. Being happy is to not suffer, to stop suffering for what makes us unhappy to avoid what makes us suffer. So to be happy is to be ultimately the least unhappy possible. Another reproach that could also be made to classical philosophical theories about happiness is that they are often solitary. They focus more on the individual, on his will, his desires, his personal discipline, independently from the others. I insist on the his, here because another thing that we could say against classical philosophical theories is that they definitely focus on the power of men. But this solitary aspect of these theories takes me to another crucial point about what actually plays a huge role on our happiness, our relationship with others, which shouldn't come second in our assessment of what happiness is.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Otto Campbell in Miami, capital of the upside-down and backwards pursuit of happiness. Truthfully, I don't think Miami is any different from anywhere else. It's just a little more obvious here. It's just a little more flashy, a little more glitz. That's the issue that became obvious to me, was that we have it backwards, and Miami kind of showed me that. When I say backwards, actually, this is the title of the book I wrote, "Upside Down," which has a subtitle of "The Fatal Flaw in Our Pursuit of Happiness," and what that flaw is, I believe, is the notion that competing with and winning over uh, our friends and everyone else, and creating sort of enviable, enviable life and creating envy, uh, will result in our happiness. And I found. Personally speaking, and I don't think I'm any different from anybody else, that this does make an ego trip, you know, a brief high, but like a drug, it uh, it's quickly fleeting and uh, always needs renewal. And that uh, lasting joy and peace are dependent on not having that. Not only do they not bring it, but it, they actually deprive us of it. I was, uh, for a long time, a charter boat captain, and various types of boats from luxurious yachts to simple boats, sailboats, party boats, and it gave me an opportunity to see uh, kind of the relationship between uh, between money and happiness, between showing off and happiness. And On this particular day, it was on a very simple boat, which was uh, it was a party boat. I mean, it carried a a large group of people, but uh, I heard one girl say to another, and the other one just nodded in agreement, when a beautiful yacht passed by. It wouldn't have been any big deal except the same two had just said to me that they were having the very best day of their lives. And they were super happy, but then when they saw the boat, they got really sad. They got a sad look on their face, and I asked them why, and why say why did they say someday? And why did they you know both agree almost without even having to mention it? And uh, they said that because everyone would be envying them like they were envying the people they saw pass, which was just a bored elderly couple being waited on by, by uniformed uh, crew on the back of this luxury yacht. And uh, it really struck me that, that this was accepted. You know, that Not only did one person say it, but that the other accepted it in spite of the fact that they claimed they were having the very best day of their lives and by all appearances seemed to be having it. And then uh, immediately they got sad. kind of along the same lines. I, I was involved myself with, with kind of a minor celebrity at one point, that, uh, but a, a fairly well-known name. In, uh, and her friends were even more famous, and she went to all the right places and knew all the right people and was envied by everybody. And, um, you know, and I was kind of attracted for the same reasons. Um, and this person was, was I'm not going to say suicidal, but it wouldn't be surprising to hear that something like that had happened. And she worked really, really hard to try to be happy. And I think, you know, uh, worked on herself, tried to do the right things. But the allure was just too strong, the allure of envy that you could see in everyone around her. I can say in my personal experience, too, I mean, even mentioning the story. Now, if I mention the names, people perk up. You know, people say, oh, this this person. and And, you know, when your life is filled with people like that and all you have to do around a regular person is just drop a name or tell a, tell a story, uh, not even bragging story, just any story, and it makes you, it gets you attention. And I think that it's extremely alluring and then that we mistake that allure or that quick high for, for real happiness, but that it leaves us extremely empty. One of the reasons I, th- I think it leaves us empty is that it creates in our minds a sort of hierarchy of, of human beings. and we put ourselves in this in this chain and we're always competing and trying to put ourselves higher up the chain. But we also are missing anybody who doesn't conform. Maybe they don't have an enviable life. Maybe they're not attractive, maybe they're not wealthy, maybe they don't do the right things or you know have been to the right places or know the right people. And so they, they are invisible. And so our world is is sort of restricted because you don't see the beauty except in very few people. And of course, the more refined and cultivated and wealthy and and uh, successful and famous you are, the smaller and smaller it gets. And the simpler we, we are, conversely, the simpler, and this doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we have to be an ignoramus and, and a failure, it's just more of a mindset. The more that we look at people the same, the more that, you know, the world opens up and the the beauty of it is apparent all the time and in every person. And even more so with the humble people because of the struggles that they've, you know, that they've faced with uh, having less privilege and less less of an easy time of it. So this discovery prompted uh, a bit of versifying. Have you been blessed to know the best in beauty, brains, and fortune, those in the know who run the show and have the greatest portion? If so, you may have noticed there's a challenge they all face, a pesky little bug that lives in every lofty place. Others catch it too, of course, and we'd exchange our lives to be that hot for what they've got. We'd kiss our souls goodbye. But more than less, this bug infests the shining and outstanding and costs them more than truly precious than they can imagine. The simple, real and true connections without competition, the deeper meetings of the soul free from all pretension. It's not to say they can't achieve these at their higher level. It's just a great deal harder. Some blame the ego, some say devil. When we know we can impress with people, places, things, tell a story, bask in glory, or just drop a name, to be contented with true love when we can create envy is rare, it seems. So we all dream of wealth and fame, a pity.
0: So our relationship to others is something that seems absolutely crucial to clearly assess whenever we are seeking happiness. Maybe what we need to do is to get interested in others in the right way. In which way exactly? well. There is a way that all these books about how to reach success, how to accomplish a successful life. I remember when book was named, I think, Unfuck Yourself, Get Out of Your Head and Into Your Life. So all of these self-help, self-coaching books are always speaking about willpower, action, take action, wake up, move, perform, be successful. And at the end, the emphasis is put on how people look at you. Here, it's really the dictature of the other's judgment upon you. And indeed, one thing we might be willing to avoid in order to be happy is precisely this perpetual comparison of ourselves with others that can take many forms, like envy, FOMO, self-depreciation, etc. We'll get back in our next episode to this need to outshine our neighbors, this idea that life is a contest where performance and competitive success are wrongly depicted as a main source of happiness. So my point here when I speak about getting interested in others in the right way would be to look at maybe trying to transform that in either, as my friend Otto has saying, a humble awe for people who are okay with not succeeding, or maybe more basically an ability to take interest in others instead of oneself. I'm thinking about the capacity to move off-center, to take yourself out of the center, to refrain our thoughts from dwelling upon, in, within, and above ourselves. It actually feels so good to look outside of yourself, to grow an interest in the people you meet and listen to, no matter how different they are or think. So even on an egoistical point of view, giving affection or dedicating attention to others is not only the best way to ever receive any attention, we call that reciprocal altruism, but it also just allows us to be humble in our ambitions, to be more aware of our surroundings, and to be less concerned or obsessed about our own successes and failures. So individualism, in a way, is this withdrawal towards one's own personal interests, but also with the risk of leading to narcissistic forms of staging oneself, of branding oneself, of selling oneself, really. And that comes with an extraordinary amount of anxiety. When you always want to be on top of your reputation, your achievements, your performance... You need to keep up with the ever-growing competitive race that is going on around you. And that's a heavy burden of responsibility leading to incalculable amounts of stress. Perhaps we could also add that humour here is key, maybe as a way of connecting with others, but also as a tool to laugh at oneself, to not take oneself so seriously in this participating to the race I just talked about. (laughs) Another thing that has been often identified as a key component of happiness is the ability to focus on the now, the sensibility, curiosity to our present environment. Philosophers like Pascal or Nietzsche regret our common inability to enjoy that now. People, unfortunately, tend to ruminate over the past or project themselves in the future and worry about it. So a crucial skill we should develop, says Pascal, among others, is precisely your ability to forget the past on the one hand, either positive events leading to nostalgia or negative events leading to useless dwelling on guilt, you know. So basically you need to avoid regret and remorse. Regret in regards to positive events that we regret not being able to enjoy anymore, and remorse in regards to the guilt we can feel regarding events we might have taken part and we're not proud of. And you should also, says Pascal, another crucial skill that we should develop is about forgetting about the future as well. Too much anticipation is very detrimental to your happiness. There are so many things we can't control, again, It's useless to be calculating all the possible consequences of our actions in the future. It actually gives you only vertigo and maybe makes you dive into torments of indecision, comparing present circumstances with other circumstances that we imagine better, more agreeable. This very hope somehow is something that prevents us from realizing our present well-being that we are too often realizing retrospectively instead of on the moment. This sensibility towards the spectacle of the present also requires a certain intellectual maturity or lucidity that philosophy can bring. So instead of cultivating the will with accomplishment, success, productivity, which is what society urges us to do, We need to cultivate the senses and the intellect for the pure sake of cultivating them in a disinterested manner. We can note here that it is not what Nietzsche's opinion is. For him, happiness doesn't reside in some peace of the soul or wisdom of detachment, a supposed wisdom that actually minimizes unhappiness. Nietzsche says that unhappiness is part of life and we have to embrace it to experience it. To live life to its fullest, we need to love our fate, amor fati. We need to say yes to life, to one's fate, not in a resigned way, but in a joyful, affirmative way. Parenthesis close. So what Pascal and still Nietzsche tend to say is that we need to allow ourselves to get surprised, intrigued and marveling at what is, not by considering it necessarily good or as something that we should be grateful for, but something at least stimulating, worthy of our interest. While all that sounds great now, it seems that we are here assuming that there is much that is in our control. And as we saw in the last episode, having control over our feelings is not equitably distributed biologically, nor psychologically among us. But maybe it is also a muscle that needs training, discipline, the same way someone with natural gifts in music or sports, for instance, can still, with training, become relatively good at playing tennis or the piano. People often ask me why I ended up studying philosophy. And I think one of the reasons is precisely because it brings a sense of perspective, but also of detachment, almost a a joyful indifference to ourselves and to the place we have in that world, in a way. But at the same time, paradoxically, it also fuses a great intellectual or sensorial curiosity towards that world. Philosophy for me, or the practice of philosophy, is the very, feeling of the impossibility to get bored. Philosopher is not a wise man or a wise woman. He or she is in love with wisdom, so we are lacking precisely wisdom. We are happy to be ignorant and to have so much to learn still. So philosophy isn't just an intellectual exercise or a theoretical research. It also has an existential dimension in the sense that it is supposed to make clearer what we really are looking for, but also just detach ourselves from a certain race that we are being thrown into. Philosophy allows us to keep a surprised and amazed look on things around us, on people around us. It helps us marvel at the world and it really feeds into this ability to see it anew. When people speak to me about boredom, I really have difficulties to picture what they mean. I I do remember being bored as a child, as this relative experience of having to do something or to not do something, to wait, when you would rather be doing something else. But when you learn how to wear philosophical glasses, everything becomes potentially interesting. You almost get overwhelmed by how rich what we are facing every second is if we were to dedicate attention to the trillions of details we are experiencing. So, philosophy isn't just an intellectual exercise, a theoretical research, it also has an existential dimension in the sense that it renders boredom impossible, but also because it helps making clearer what we really should be looking for, what we should desire, and what pitfalls we so easily fall into when trying to be happy. I want to thank my friend Otto Campbell for his contribution to this episode. I also am thanking uh, several friends whom I've introduced in other episodes. I'm thinking here about Clovis Pareco, for instance, who spoke about disability earlier. And I just want to add that I'm going to actually put out a little bonus on stoicism, which is going to be an interview between me and Massimo, who is a great specialist on stoicism. And what he has to say would be a great addendum to what we've been barely touching upon in this episode. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? a podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast as well as composing all of the music Stay tuned for the next episode